Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the UK media is so far in the bin that the new statesman can't even do a 50 most influential people on the left and actually have left people. In the world's public enemy, Chuck D. Bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. See, I was going to start for this pod by you know talking about oh how I went to London yesterday, saw Ari Lennox live, she was amazing, and then J Cole came out of just literally out the blue to the point where even Ari Lennox was surprised that he even turned up. It was just uh, I'd love to talk about that. I'd love to talk about that, but just as I was on the train home, just scouring through Twitter, you know what I mean, just listening to music, just having a look, and I see this list, the New Statesman's Left Power List, which, as you can imagine, features um, a ton of uh, Labour people, and if you've been listening to the show, you know that I don't consider Labour left anymore. And Keir Starmer has actually gone as far as to say it. A couple of days ago, literally said it on wax. Said if that sounds conservative, it is. There we go. He literally said it. But yet, but yet, the new statesman thought, hey, let's drop a top 50 or 50 most influential people shaping Britain's progressive politics keynote keyword is progressive there so let me shout out some names for you you know you have all the label pe- labor people so you know keir starmer angela rayner uh west streeting david lammy sure you know what i mean it's 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 it's, it's banner at that point right um to have anybody not named jeremy corbyn or zara sultana as a leftist in labor um, is kind of a joke. Like to to call Keir Starmer progressive is absolutely fucking hilarious. Like you're supposed to be a current affairs media organization, and you can't pick out fifty leftists or fifty progressives. Ladies and gentlemen, J.K. Rowling is on that list. Progressive. J.K. Rowling, what are we doing here? We can't, we can't, can't, can't even pick out fifty. Why do they even bother? Why do they even bother with that list? Absolutely dead on arrival list. Absolutely dead on arrival. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe. It. I just had to talk about it. Had to just shit on it for a second. Quick, uh, for a quick second, I was like, "What the fuck is that?" I just, I yay yay. It was just grim, grimy, 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 grimy. Anyway, I did see Ari Lennox. Shout out to uh, my good friend Caroline, who uh, uh, I went with. And um, yeah, man, it was really good. It was really, really good. It was a great day out. Also saw uh, Return to Soul. Um, it's a film uh, dropped, uh, I think, last year. Very, very, a lot to unpack with that film. <laughs> it 
there's a lot to unpack. Um, if I even tried to explain it to you, um, I wouldn't be doing it justice. Um, it's just very dense. Um, there's a lot to think about. Um, there's a lot of themes going on. Um, cross-country um, thematics. Um, the concept of adoption. Um, inter Intercontinental adoption. Um, Korean culture. French culture. Um it's just a lot. It's just um and, and obviously, you know, Korean culture I'm being very uh broad with. There's obviously many micro things that happen in the film in Korea in South Korea that are just uh very specific, such as um having someone pour drink for you instead of pouring it yourself. Um I learned that. That was that was a new thing I learned. Apparently it's rude to pour your own drink uh when, when you have when you're in company. Um, in South Korea, so there you go. That's something uh, new for you guys to learn. And yeah, it was just um, but that it, I'm literally just scratching the surface. The film is absolutely just, yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a wild one. Um, it's very not even wild in terms of just action or whatever. It's it's pretty um, yeah, it's, it's it kind of makes you laugh in some ways, but and also cringe in a couple of ways. And yeah, the ending was just a bit somber as well. Um, so yeah, man. Really interesting film. Highly recommend uh, people go and watch it if you're really into. If you really want to explore just some really good international film, uh, foreign film. I mean, if you speak English, a foreign film, but you know, what I mean, international film. Uh, please just yeah, return the soul. Highly recommend. Uh, so let's get into the show. Uh, we have uh, two topic: uh, to, uh, society, uh, music, and also a long read uh, to finish off. Um, and yeah, format is for again. Email socials writing all that in the full show notes uh music as well and obviously all the podcasts under the 5 epm and with that said let the beat drop and let's get into the show in a week where eurovision comes and goes um, I think Sweden won it that's basically all I know <laughs> literally as far as I go uh, in terms of consuming Eurovision my pops was just like you like Eurovision don't you I'm like when when did I say that to you and Like that, that's, that is not that is not my steez trust me on that chief not happening um, I just don't get it I just I don't get the scoring system I don't get what makes a song better from the other um is it a matter of pageantry? Is it a matter of actually, you know, good songwriting? Is it a matter of, is it objective in any way? I don't get it. I, I don't really want to get it. Um, I can't be asked. Um, so yeah, I'm good on that. A Turkish presidential election goes to a runoff. The BAFTA TV awards go down. Um, didn't didn't watch it. Didn't look at it. As you as you guys know, I'm very not into award season anymore. Um, but you know, for any for any. British uh, TV awards of this magnitude, which only BAFTA can do, maybe apart from the um, RTS uh, uh, TV awards, um, uh, to to, ha- to not have the Lazarus Project anywhere near it just doesn't make sense to me. So there you go. Uh, Vice uh, files for bankruptcy, and the world, the world, the world, yes, the world, the thing you're on now, um, is likely to breach uh, 1.5 uh, cent. Uh, cent- Celsius uh, climate threshold uh, by 2027. So we're doing well, guys. Keep keep 
keep it moving. Let's start with this society topic. Um, so this is a piece um, that I probably could have read. Um, I probably could have read last uh, last week, um, but I decided not to. But um, it kept coming up, and I'm just like, you know what? Let's get into it because I feel like even though the coronation happened practically a fortnight ago, um, I still feel like there's just elements that we need to talk about here. Um, and this doesn't really. I mean. This is related to the coronation because it happened during the coronation procession. But this is mainly about just um, where our society is at, where UK society is at right now in terms of protesting and what you can do and um, police power as well. Um, it's so funny how in one sense the police ha- peace reputation has never ever been this bad, but yet they probably have the most power they've ever had, which is such a fascinating dichotomy um but here we are in tory britain uh so this is uh, via byline times it's called 18 hours in elephant and castle um it's by mick right um i've been saying mike because i see mic and you think microphone and i think mike but apparently his name is mick right so apologies for previous mentionings of his name but it's mick right um so let's jump right in the king doesn't smoke crack. Great start line. Great, amazing, amazing start line. <laughs> it's just amazing first line. Uh, the king probably doesn't know what crack is. Doing well. Just great two sentences right there. That's, that's like, that reminds me of um, uh, like a novel uh, thing, uh, like, like a tip for novelists. Like you have to make your first sentence just powerful um, or, or just, you know, memorable in some ways, right? Um Take uh, 1984, for instance, uh, which is a popular one. Um, I probably could get out of my bookshelf, but I can't be asked at the moment. I think it was like it's half past 13 or something. You know, it's just provocative. Uh, but that, that, yeah, the king doesn't smoke crack. The king probably doesn't know what crack is. It's a great two-sentence uh, to, to begin an article. He knows the, fresh smel- he knows the fre- smell of fresh paint. Always fresh paint. Every place he goes is cleaned and cleansed. He's a dweller in castles, not elephant in castle. The king will never visit the sweat stink, crack bugged, fugged, is that how you say it? Piss tanged foyer of Woolworth prison, uh, police, police station. He sees police in their finest uniforms or speeding beside his motorcade. He sees police bending themselves into every shape to reduce the friction of the world. The protesters from Republic, after months and months of negotiating with the Met for the right to protest near the coronation procession, saw only police friction. When their van arrived in Trafalgar Square and they began to unload placards and drinks for the protesters who were coming to join them, they were greeted by 25 police officers and instant arrest. They were held for 18 hours at Woolworth, given crap books and even uh, worse coffee, before finally being released just after the 10 o'clock news had gone off air. The timing was as deliberate as the ambush that brought Graham Smith, Republic CEO, and six other potential protesters to the cells at Woolworth. The Republic 7 have now had their bail conditions removed and their phones returned. The Met has conceded that they were not planning illegal disruptions or to lock on. But then the Met knew that from the start and the Republic 7 were detained in an attempt to decapitate the protest. It still went on but were smaller and without speeches. Labour MP Clive Lewis was warned off appearing with vague talk of 
uh, security threats, quote-unquote, by the police, and anyway, he'd have no amplification as Republic's sound equipment was seized, just like the megaphone in, in the possession of another arrested supporter who was lifted in Hyde Park. Republic were not alone in the stinking cells of Woolworth. There were Animal Rising members taking from a training course going on five miles from the position uh, and dragged Woolworth, dragged to Woolworth. This just says T, so I'm assuming to Woolworth, uh, to be questioned about things they hadn't even contemplated doing. As well as activists from Just Stop Oil, whose offices Animal Rising had been training at, who were just treat, who were treated more roughly and kept longer. Some of their number didn't get released until almost 4am and most saw at least 20 hours in custody. They have been released without charge but not before their phones were seized and searched. The aims of these arrests was to deny the activists even the, even the prospect of protesting and in the seizure of their smartphones to disrupt organising networks and prevent detainees who may have wanted to speak out to the media from doing so. That attempt extended to the choice of Woolworth Nick as the holding facility. Ten minutes walk from Elephant Castle Tube. It is a grim little hole of a station and police commanders rightly assumed that most of the press and media mesmerised by the golden goonie of the coronation service and procession would not bother sending anyone out there. They were right. I arrived at 1.30pm and stayed at the police station until 3am. A reporter from PA was there for a few hours and did a good job. A Sky News camera took some shots and an ITV crew came to review Graham upon his release but was stymied when he didn't emerge before their bulletin finished. Just as the police had intended all along. But by choosing not to chase up the arrest, the press and wider media missed a scoop that dropped into the lap of me, an independent journalist with a long-simmering grudge against most new papers and broadcasters. Three Westminster Council volunteers working for a scheme called Night Stars were arrested in Soho at 2am or nearabouts. They, were, they wear pink jackets labelled with the Met logo, as well as Westminster Council branding, and hand out flip-flops and water as well as rape alarms. But it was the latter that caught the attention of the snarling meat bastards of the territorial support group who, buoy, who, who buoyed by a Section 60 search area, were inspecting the bags and personal belongings of everyone they came across. The arrest of the Night Stars would not have been known until the Met decided to make it public, so possibly not at all, had I not, be, had I not stu- been stood on the steps of Woolworth Station when two of the Night uh, Stars 3 were released. The two women, whose names I have not published at any point in Moat, had never been arrested before. The younger of the two was in tears as she left the station. They both had day jobs and were sad, angry and embarrassed to have been picked up. After talking to me, they left. I tweeted their story. A couple of hours later, the third night star, an Asian man called Riz, who is a popular figure in activist circles across London, walked out of detention. He didn't come out at the same time as his colleagues because the police had waited longer to process him. While the woman had not been handcuffed or physically manhandled, Riz had been immediately cuffed by the TSG and held outside station in those cuffs from 2.30 to 5am before he was taken inside. His wrists were raw from handcuff burn, and he was really keen to tell his story. I filmed a video with him that showed his high-vis jacket, bears the logos of Westminster Council, and dot dot dot, the Metropolitan Police. Riz is an extension rebellion supporter and has been there to support members of the group when they have been released from police custody in the past. He doesn't take part in direct actions, but is known to the police as an activist. He believes, and I do too, 
that he was racially profiled and targeted for harsher treatment. Like his colleagues, he had his phone taken and was released on bail. The bail has since been cancelled and he has not been charged uh, with anything after being without his phone for more than 24 hours. He now also has that back in his possession. The video I took of Riz soon had a large number of retweets and I was asked by a large number of broadcasters and newspapers for permission to use it in their reports. I let any of them... I let any of them use it with the exception of The Sun and The Daily Mail on the proviso that I was credited and Riz was not misrepresented. The Times New Paper did not uphold that deal and I am currently negotiating a fee from them for the unauthorised image. I will be donating it to Extinct Rebellion and Just a Boyle. On the Today programme, Justin Webb repeatedly referenced my reporting without ever mentioning who actually did the reporting in the British media. Independent reporters will often be used for their expertise but not credited for it or paid for it. Thankfully, Nikki Campbell on BBC Five Live restored a little, tr- uh, a little of my faith in the corporation by having me on his show and giving me time to speak, even if I had to battle against a former head of royal protection at the Met, who told me in his dodderingly patri- patrician, patrician, patrician manner that I should quote unquote calm down. Reader, I did not calm down. The lessons of eighteen hours in Elephant and Castle were this for me. The police do not want us to see what they are doing, and the media helps them if it can't, if it can't be bothered to send anyone to the far reaches of dot, 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 South London. The new policing powers introduced by this government and enthusiastically pushed by Pre Patel, then Swilla Braverman, make protest de facto illegal and make it threatening to be a journalist trying to do your job. Activists are amongst the best of among the best of us. The solidarity, hope and strength I saw on the steps of and in the horrible foyer of Woolworth Police Station made me see humanity kindly when the Metropolitan Police had sent me into a slough slough of despair. I am still tired from those 18 hours in Elephant Castle, but I am also wide awake. I think you need to be too. (sighs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, just the fact that there's so many restrictions towards protesting now actually makes it kind of scary because protest is just one of those things you don't really like you know it might disrupt it might disrupt your commute you know it might disrupt some form of your life in some way but trust me man if if just imagine imagine like imagine the um Imagine where we'd be if, like, you know, these Extinction Rebellion protests have been going on for years now. Like, have, like, this is a matter of just getting attention for a certain thing. And these things are important. You guys know they're important. Maybe you don't find the coronation, uh, maybe you don't find uh, republicanism or, um, you know, the, the not, no need to have a monarchy people such as myself. Um, maybe you find that derivative, right? Um, maybe you just find that you know unnecessary. Sure, but for what for whatever protests you find unnecessary, there are several more that are highly important. And if even if you subjectively don't think those are important either, trust me, there will come a time where you feel like you'll need to protest about something. And the fact that we are all increasingly less and less of being able to have that right to protest is 
dipping us into a state um, of just, you know, authoritarianism, basically, and uh, just a state of silence. And there's nothing worse than silence. Nothing worse. Um, so, yeah, man, shout out to Mick Wright for the OG report. Um, but, yeah, man, it's just um, it's a harrowing thought that protesting is, in his words, in his words, uh, de facto illegal. Let's hop on to music, and uh, this one is about Brixton Academy. Um, so this comes off the... December closing. Um, it actually, it happened in December. Of the, uh, uh, is it a sake? Is that how you say it? I'm not sure if it is, but I'm going to say it like that, um, just for lack of knowledge. Um, but yeah, his um, show came to an end uh, basically after two songs, and uh, people died. Um, two people died, and um, yeah, this is basically what's happened now. Uh, what's happening now? Um, that, you know, Brixton Academy has been closed since and uh, might be closed forever. Um, so this is by Sharon, Shannon uh, Mahanti uh, for ES Magazine, even standard. And uh, yeah, is it like itself for Brixton Academy is the title. So let's drop home. I'm outside Br- Brixton Academy on a Saturday afternoon. At this time, Astoria Walk should be buzzing with the exuberant chatter of music fans queuing shoulder to shoulder hours before a concert begins. Instead, it's ghostly quiet, as it has been ever since the doors closed on 15th December. That evening ended in tragedy. Afrobeat singer Sarkis uh, set came to an abrupt end after just two songs. As a man took to the stage, we have to stop the show, he announced. They breached the door. You've got 3,000 people who have broken the doors. A horrific crush in the foyer killed two people. Rebecca Ikumelo, uh, a 33-year-old concert goer, and Gabby Hutchinson, a 23-year-old security guard, Two other attendees were seriously injured. Exactly what happened that night is still being ascertained. Lambeth councillors met days later for an emergency meeting, closing the academy until further notice. A full hearing took place in January, where the venue's licence was suspended for a further three months, citing the prevention of crime and disorder, the prevention of public nuisance, public safety, and the protection of children from harm. Academy Music Group, which runs the venue, argues that new proposals will enable the venue to reopen safely. But in a statement released last month, the Met Police confirmed they were seeking a full revocation of the venue's license. Quote, What happened that night was an absolutely terrible tragedy. That should never have happened, says Mark David, uh, founder of Music Venue Trust, a charity that seeks to protect uh, grassroots music, grassroots music venues in the UK. We want to see a full inquiry. We want to see lessons learned. Any failing in venue safety needs to be seriously investigated. The question then is, what happens to this building? Our concern is the way that this is being presented at the moment isn't recognising Brixton Academy as a very important cultural space. The simple revocation of the licence is not an appropriate response to a terrible tragedy. We should be concerned when an incident like this results in the loss of uh, live music and culture. It's the most important venue in London of its size, Possibly the whole country. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, let's, let's sketch out. Uh, the venue's uh, uncertain fate. 
reflects a broader concern for the status of live music venues in the UK. In London, a slew of iconic music venues have all closed their doors in recent years. The Astoria, Earl's Court, Hammersmith Palais. Research led by the Mayor's Music Venue Task Force found that the city had lost 35% of its grassroots music venues from 2007 to 2015, a statistic that has been exacerbated by the impact of the pandemic. While the majority of threatened venues face closure due to financial hardship, Brixton Academy is the opposite, playing a vital role in the local economy by driving major footfall to local businesses. The threat to its survival has prompted uproar from musicians, fans and the local community. A petition launched two weeks ago by a Brixton resident has amassed almost 60,000 signatures and has been shared by members of Blur and the Chemical Brothers. Another quote, Clearly there were a lot of problems the night of the crush. But it doesn't seem like the organisation was solely responsible for it, says Jamie McColl, guitarist of Bombay Bicycle Club, who played for, who first played at the Academy in 2009. From what I understand, it seems like the Met should take some of the blame. Calling it to close, calling for it to close, seems like they're displacing that blame. When you look at in, when you look at in the broader context of some of the things the Met have done around the particular genres of music in London. Uh, what kind of genres please tell me Mr. McCall what kind of genres are you talking about uh, the may have done <laughs> and generally the story stay of nightlife and music venues in London over the past years it feels like a very bleak encapsulation of a lot of things says McCall many have questioned both the police response of the, on the night a video emerged of an officer appearing to throw a woman down the steps of the venue and their motives for calling a revocation of the venue's uh, licence I'm fuming because the Met's reason to call for the venue's lives to be revoked doesn't seem to make any sense, says James Smith, lead singer of Leeds rock band Yard Act, who had to move their show last week to the Troxy. To make make a statement of intent like that feels reckless and unfounded. The Met's profile in the past few years has been under intense scrutiny, and I think with the report that came out a couple of weeks ago about how it's racist to the core... I don't see how people aren't going to draw a line between the closure of this venue in a vibrant multicultural area that's always celebrated for its diversity and a further attempt to hammer more nails of gentrification into an area. It's brutal. Booking the Brixton Academy show is a pivotal moment uh, in the career of burgeoning acts like Yard Act. South London five-piece Shame were also forced to relocate their first Academy show last month. Another quote. It felt like we'd reached a career-affirming moment, says guitarist Eddie Green. For any band, a headline date at Brixton is a badge of honour. It's a venue that artists of all genres and levels of fame want to play. My dad often reminisces about going to gigs back back when it was called The Fair Deal in the 1980s. Not to mention the uh, countless live albums recorded there by people like New Order, Pixies, Mohead to name a few. The place is completely steeped in history. Bought from a brewery for just £1 in 1983 by then 23-year-old Simon Parks, Brixton Academy has since become one of the UK's most revered venues. Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Madonna, Dinah Ross, Rihanna have all performed there. Agenda-setting bands, The Clash and The Specials performed throughout the years of That's Right Britain. As the first venue in the UK to receive a a. 6am licence, it brought previously illegal rave culture to broad audiences. More recently, it's become a natural home for some of the finest grime, UK rap and Afrobeats artists. I think it's com- comfortably the best venue in the UK, both to experience as a gig, uh, experience a gig as a fan and a player. <coughs> Not to take photos at apparently, but that's just me. Apparently, uh, the first gig Jack Steadman, lead singer, and I went to together was there was, was there in 2005. 
the NME tour with Blockpie and the Future Heads. Four years after that, it was us doing the tour. Throughout their career, Bombay Basketball Club continued to return to Brixton despite being able to fill larger venues. Another quote, it has a really powerful energy. After we came back from hiatus in 2019, we did our first London gig there. At one point, there was a spontaneous three-minute applause, which we all felt incredibly overwhelmed by. That's probably the single most memorable thing that's happened to me at a gig we've done. That we've done. So from a personal perspective, it would obviously be terrible to lose as a venue. With the inquiry still going, Brixton Academy's future remains uncertain. We think, the li- another quote, we think the license review is scheduled for 15th of May, says David. Um, it's the 17th of May, as I record. Um, if it is revoked, we are doubtful whether it will be able to open. This situation sadly feels like another stage of the ongoing removal of Brixton's culture, says Green. This time, however, I hope that people's voice uh, speaks loud enough to stop what would be a true tragedy. <sighs> I mean, economically, that's just a death blow <laughs> to, to Brixton as a whole. Um, I can't, I can't think of a more kind of just central hub um, to this place. Mate, I'm trying to think of a spot that just um, that literally feels like the centre of a particular space like Brixton is um, to the Brixton Academy is to Brixton um, it's literally a couple minutes walk away from the station it's on the main road pretty much um, I just yeah I can't really imagine it just not being there um, I'm trying to think of there be any reason for me to go there after that you know what I mean um, and it probably isn't apart from maybe just I want to take photos there one day or something like that you know what I mean just something completely random and spontaneous um but you know people go there for great live music um like i said and like the article said many artists of note have been there you know i've been there what a, a few times now i went there to see uh, little sims uh went there to see j-rock and schoolboy q went there for beat horizon where i saw jerry the damager saw raekwon sampa the great goldie um the far side, and that was all in one night. That was all in one day, a one-day festival. Um, so, you know, I've been to the Brixton Academy a fair few times, and every single one, apart from Little Sims, where I had to apparently give my camera for whatever the fuck reason, because my camera is a camera, and I don't even want to get into that. Um, apart from that little bit, um, you know, it's a great place. It's a really good place. It's um, enjoyable for most. And... Um, It'll be shit. It'll be shit to see it get shut down over this. Um, I don't feel like uh, it should be shut down in this way. I don't. I, it doesn't make economical sense. It will kill a lot of what's left of Brixton culture. Um, and yeah, hopefully it doesn't um, go anywhere. Um, hopefully it gets back up and running as soon as possible. But. Um, yeah, man, it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't really understand why the Met Police, I mean, I do understand, it's just, um, you know, passing of blame, and they just just love being shit, apparently. They just love making the wrong decision pretty much every time. Um, it's kind of just a running theme of the Met Police at this point. I'm just wondering when they're going to get disbanded. The answer is never, but, um, you know, I can live in hope. Uh, but yeah, man, hope, hopefully, hopefully the Brixton Academy can... Uh, uh, can rise again, so to speak.
so you hear the music it's time for a long read so for this long read we get into the work of alex morell this is via his own site it is called the age of average dropped march 20th and when i said put simply let's jump right in In the early 1990s, two Russian artists named Vitaly Komar and Alexander Melamid took the unusual step of hiring a market research firm. Their brief was simple, understand what Americans desire most in a work of art. Over 11 days, the researchers at Martilla and Kylie Inc. asked 1,001 US citizens a series of survey questions. What's your favorite color? Do you prefer sharp angles or soft curves? Do you like smooth canvases or thick brush strokes? Would you rather figures that are nude or clothed? Should they be at leisure or working, indoors or outside? In what kind of landscape? Komar and Melamid then set about painting a piece that reflected the results. The pair repeated this process in a number of countries including Russia, China, France and Kenya. Each piece in the series, titled People's Choice, was intended to be a unique collaboration with the people of a different country and culture, but it didn't quite go to plan. Describing the work in his book Playing to the Gallery, the artist Grayson Perry said, quote, In nearly every country, all people really wanted was a landscape with a few figures around, animals in the foreground, mainly blue. Unquote. Despite soliciting the opinions of over 11,000 people from 11 different countries, each of the paintings looked almost exactly the same. After completing the work, Kaimar quit, quote, we have been travelling to different countries, engaging in dull negotiations with representatives of polling companies, raising money for further polls, receiving more or less the same results, and painting more or less the same blue landscapes. Looking for freedom, we found slavery. Unquote. This, however, was the point. The art was not the paintings themselves, but the comment they made. We like to think that we are individuals, but we are much more alike than we wish to admit. 30 years after People's Choice, it seems the landscapes which Komar and Melamid painted have become the landscapes in which we live. This article argues that from film to fashion and architecture to advertising, creative fields have become dominated and defined by convention and cliché. Distinctiveness has died. In every field we look at, we find that everything looks the same. Welcome to the age of average. Let's dive in. Interiors all look the same. In 2011, Laurel Schwaltz was planning to redecorate her New York apartment when she began searching the internet for interior design inspiration. Before long, the designer had stumbled on the perfect research tool, Airbnb. From the comfort of her own home, the app gave her a window into thousands of others. She could travel the world and view hundreds of rooms without leaving her chair. Schwaltz began sharing images to her Tumblr, Modern Life Space. The blog became an ever-expanding gallery of interior design and inspiration. But something wasn't right. Quote, The Airbnb experience is supposed to be about real people and authenticity. But so many of them were similar, whether in Brooklyn, Osaka, Rio de Janeiro, Seoul, or Santiago. Unquote. Schwaltz had identified an Airbnb design aesthetic that had organically emerged and was quickly spreading through the platform's properties. White walls, raw wood, Nespresso machines, Eames chairs, bare brick, open shelving, Edison bulbs. The style combines 
the rough honed rawness of industrialism with the elegant minimalism of mid-century design. But Schwaltz wasn't the only one to identify the trend. Aaron Taylor Harvey, the executive creative director of environment at Airbnb, had spotted something similar. Quote, You can feel a kind of trend in certain listings. There's an international Airbnb style that's starting to happen. I think that some of it is really a wonderful thing that gives people a sense of comfort and immediate belonging when they travel, and some of it is a little generic. It can go either way, unquote. This modern life space, or international Airbnb style, goes by a number of other names. It's known as the Brooklyn look, or according to the journalist Kyle Chaker, airspace. Quote, I call this style airspace. It's marked by an easy, recognisable mix of symbols, like reclaimed wood, Edison bulbs, and refurbished industrial lighting. That's meant to provide familiar, comforting surroundings for a wealthy, mobile elite who want to feel like they're visiting somewhere authentic while they travel, but who actually just crave more of the same. More rustic interiors, and sans-serif logos, and splashes of cliché accent colours on rugs and walls, unquote. Perhaps this seems inevitable. Isn't it obvious that a global group of hosts all trying to present their properties to a global group of travellers would converge on a single, optimal, appealing, yet inoffensive style? Airspace, however, isn't just limited to residential interiors. The same tired tropes have spread beyond the spaces where we live and taken over the spaces where we work, eat, drink and relax. In an in-depth investigation for The Guardian, Chaker documents how the airspace style of interior decor has become the dominant design style of coffee shops. Quote, Go to Shoreditch Grind, near a roundabout in the middle of London's hipster district. It's a coffee shop with rough hone wooden tables, plentiful sunlight from wide windows, and austere pendant lighting. Then head to Tech in Manchester. It's a coffee shop with a big glass storefront, claimed wood furniture, and hanging Edison bulbs. Compare the two, you might not even know you're in different spaces. It's no accident that these places look similar. Though they're not a part of a chain and don't have their interior design directed by a single corporate overlord, these coffee shops have a way of mimicking the same tired style, a hipster reduction obsessed with a superficial sense of history and the remnants of industrial machinery that once occupied the neighbourhoods they take over. And this isn't just a trend that we can see in British coffee culture. The same trend has been identified in cities from Bangkok to Beijing and from Seoul to San Francisco. According to The Verge, quote, The coffee roaster full barrel in San Francisco looks like the Australian's Toby's estate in Brooklyn, looks like the coffee collective in Copenhagen, looks like Bear Pond Espresso in Tokyo. You can get a dry cortado with a perfect latte art at any of them, then Instagram it on a mobile countertop and further spread the aesthetic to your followers, unquote. Once this interior design style became dominant in the world's coffee shops, it began to spread throughout the wider hospitality sector. And Quito, for example, writes about how the hipster makeover has made its way to restaurants in Quartz. Quote, Established restaurants are getting the hipster makeover. Traditional restaurants like Dickie's Barbecue in Dallas, Eatery's in Toronto's Chinatown, and even the 47-year-old roadside diner chain Cracker Barrel, in the guise of its new biscuit joint Holler and Dash, are embracing chalkboard menus and reclaimed woodlook to attract the affluent design-savvy millennial, unquote. So, the interiors of our homes, coffee shops and restaurants have begun to converge upon a single style. But when we move outside, the story doesn't get much better. Architecture all looks the same. 
The anthropologist Mark Auger coined the term non-place to describe built environments that are defined by their transience and anonymity. Non-places, such as airports, service stations and hotels, tend towards utilitarian sterility. They prioritise function and efficiency over a softer sense of human expression and social connection. In 1995, the Professor of Architecture and Urban Design at Harvard University, Rem Koolhaas, published an essay titled The Generic City, quote, Is the contemporary city like the contemporary airport, all the same? Is it possible to theorise this convergence? And if so, to what ultimate configuration is it aspiring? Convergence is possibly only at the piece of shedding identity. That is usually seen as a loss, but at the scale at which it occurs, it must mean something. What are the disadvantages of identity, and conversely, what are the advantages of blankness? What if this seemingly accidental and usually regretted homogenization was an intentional process, a conscious movement away from difference towards similarity? Unquote. That opening question takes Auger's idea of the sterile non-place and applies it to the city as a whole. Kohlhaas, in effect, is arguing that solace is becoming the default design direction of all urban architecture. Almost 30 years after the publication of The Generic City, I think it's clear Kohlhaas's fears were well-founded. Architecture's march towards blank homogeneity is perhaps most obvious in the quick-build, low-cost apartment blocks that have rapidly spread across the United States. Justin Fox, writing for Bloomberg, quote, Cheap stick framing has led to a proliferation of blocky, forgettable mid-rises. These buildings are in almost every US city. They range from three to seven stories tall and can stretch for blocks. They're usually full of rental apartments, but they can also house college dorms, condominiums, hotels, or assisted living facilities. Close to city centres, they tend toward a blocky, often colourful modernism. Out in the suburbs, their architecture is more likely to feature peaked roofs and historical motifs. Their outer walls are covered with fibre cement, metal, stucco, or bricks. Unquote. This architectural style, characterised by boxy forms and unconvincing cladding, goes by names such as fast casual architecture and McCurbanism. But perhaps most commonly, these buildings are known as five over ones. When Justin Fox drove across the US, he realised that they were not specific to one city or state. They were everywhere, and they were proliferating. Quote, In 2017, 187,000 new housing units were completed in buildings of 50 units or more in the US, the most since the Census Bureau started keeping track in 1972. By my informal massaging of the data, well over half of those were in blocky mid-rises, unquote. But why is this the case? Why are the majority of large American buildings succumbing to the same style? Kobe Lefkowitz offers four reasons in his essay why everywhere looks the same. First, unlike in the early 20th century, developers are increasingly constrained by building codes. Second, rapidly rising land costs cause developers to pack as many properties as possible into every site. Third, the rising barriers to entry have caused the industry to consolidate. And fourth, developers seek to reduce their costs by reusing the same plans across multiple sites. Quote, It would be disappointing enough to fail in gracing a land as physically beautiful as the US with the built companions it deserves. But it's downright shameful that we deprive ourselves of living in interesting, meaningful and wonderful places, given the thousands of precedents for inspiration worldwide and many hundreds within our borders. 
Instead, we've copied and pasted our society from the most anodyne, the most boring, and the most bleh. We've all seen them, covered with fibre cement, stucco, and bricks or brick-like material. They've shown up all over the country, indifferent to their surroundings, spreading like a non-native species, unquote. Cities once felt rooted in time and place. The Victorian grandeur of London, the art deco glamour of New York, the neon modernity of Tokyo. But with anodyne architecture spreading across the United States, cities are beginning to lose their contextual identities. They are all starting to look the same. Another quote. Institutional developers march forward, ignorant of what makes Portland, Maine different from Portland, Oregon, or Philadelphia from Kansas City. Unique local traditions? Completely different climates? Ha! Jokes on us. A box fits just as well in any of these places. Unquote. And it isn't just design of our residential buildings, but our professional ones as well. In an article for Grist, Heather Smith describes the homogeneity of the office parks she'd pass on the way to her mother's place of work and how present-day Silicon Valley feels so familiar. Quote, All the offices and factories along the way to my mum's office were smaller versions of the same thing. Set back from the road behind deep rectangles of rolling green lawn, no sidewalks, sometimes clusters of begonias added accent marks, or regimented little bushes pruned into spheres or squares. Smith continues, I thought about this recently when I went driving through Silicon Valley, because I was surprised at how similar it was to the neighbourhoods I had grown up in. Not that it was an exact replica, but the architecture was the same. The same low-slung buildings, set back from the street by parking lots. Each complex its own self-contained bubble, separated from the road by a row of trees. Unquote. So the places where we live and work have begun to converge upon a single style, but we're also seeing the same trend occur in the way we travel between them. Cars all look the same. In 2015, the ex-chairman of BBH London, Jim Carroll, recalled his realisation 32 years earlier their aerodynamic tests have begun to make all cars look alike. Quote, Some of you will recall the day in 1983 when we woke up and noticed that the cars all looked the same. There was a simple explanation. They'd all been through the same wind tunnel. We nodded assent at the evident improvement in fuel efficiency, but we could not escape a weary sigh of disappointment. Modern life is rubbish. Unquote. In Carol's opinion, because all vehicles underwent the same wind tunnel tests, Manufacturers were independently converging on the same optimal set of forms, proportions, and dimensions. And as a result, homogeneity in car design was increasing. What Carol didn't realise was that things were about to get a lot worse. Sat at a red light, Drew McGarry took the opportunity to scope out some new car ideas. Suddenly he saw an SUV that looked attractive, but he couldn't quite see the badge. Another car was blocking his line of sight. Quote, maybe it's a Bimmer. I said to the dog, it kind of looks like one. It wasn't. It was a Hyundai Santa Fe, which kind of resembles the Acura RDX, which kind of resembles the Volvo XC60, which kind of resembles the BMW X3. These four models are all 75 inches wide, 66 inches high, save for the Volvo, which is 65, and they only differ in length by a maximum of three inches. They all have rear quarter windows smaller than a porthole on a submarine, they all have chrome accents to increase the glam factor by like 5%, and they all abhor right angles. They're spiritual clones, and they're not exceptions in being so. Unquote. 
But why do so many modern cars look the same? Jim Carroll's wind tunnel theory is certainly one reason. Another is that the automotive giants increasingly share vehicle platforms between many brands that they operate. And Ian Callum, who led design at Jaguar Land Rover for two decades, provides a third theory. Quote, There was a time when you could identify the country the car came from. But today, basically every company makes cars for basically every country. Cars are now designed for the broadest possible audience, across the broadest number of countries, to be manufactured in the most efficient possible way. Callum continues, Before the typical car designer can even begin sketching out a model, they're given specs from the packaging department. The measurements may vary within millimetres. These strict dimensions are agonisingly chosen to please the needs of the wind tunnel, to adhere to government safety regulations, to properly accommodate the average American family's collective weight of £78,000, and to allow for enough cargo space for all their crap. Unquote. These three theories explain why the three-dimensional design of cars has been converging over time, but they don't explain why the colour of cars have converged as well. According to data shared by Jokul Solberg, around 40% of cars sold in 1996 were monochromatic, black, white, silver or grey. 20 years later, that figure has increased to 80%. There are many suggestions for why this might be. Perhaps these colours come as standard and everything else is an optional upgrade. Perhaps brighter colours fade more quickly. Maybe people buy less vibrant colours when times are more turbulent. Maybe the resale market for monochromatic cars is more buoyant. Or maybe the paired-back design of smartphones informed stylistic trends in the auto industry. Regardless, the result is the same. Where once car parks were a kaleidoscope of reds, blues and greens, today they capture a sea of desaturation. And what's more, the visual identities of car brands seem to be following suit. In September 2020, Vauxhall released a modernised minimal marquee. According to Henry Wong at Design Week, quote, Vauxhall unveiled its new logo last week, a confidently British look, which reworks the Griffin icon and introduces a blue and red colour scheme. Most prominent is its new flat styling, a simplified version of the logo's previous 3D look. Vauxhall caused redesign the, quote, progressive face of the brand, unquote. Vauxhall had ditched a logo that looked like a chrome sculpted bonnet badge and replaced it with a flatter, thinner, altogether simpler execution. But they weren't the only one. As Wong says, at least five other major manufacturers had charted a similar course. Quote, It's a familiar story within car branding of late. Audi first unveiled a minimalist-inspired rebrand in 2018, but it's been followed by a host of other marquees in the past year. Volkswagen, BMW, Toyota, Nissan have all revealed new branding and each with a flat logo. Unquote. So, the cars we drive, their colours and their logos have begun to converge upon a single style, but we're also seeing the same trend occur in the way we look ourselves. People all look the same. In December 2019, the journalist Gia Tolentino set about investigating a troubling trend. Many celebrities and influencers have started to resemble each other. Quote, This past summer, I booked a plane ticket to Los Angeles with the hope of investigating what seems likely to be one of the oddest legacies of our rapidly expiring decade. The gradual emergence among professionally beautiful women 
of a single cyborgian face. It's a young face, of course, with poreless skin and plump high cheekbones. It has cat-like eyes and long cartoonish lashes. It has a small, neat nose and full, lush lips. It looks at you coyly, but blankly, as if its owner has taken half a clonopin and is considering asking you for a private jet ride to Coachella, unquote. The look that Tolentino is describing is the result of at least three conspiring trends. The growing market for injectable treatments is driving a trend for physical enhancements. The rise of apps, such as Facetune, is driving a trend for digital enhancements. And makeup techniques such as strobing and contouring are driving a trend for cosmetic enhancements. Over the last decade, these trends have developed in parallel, each feeding and fueling the other. Starting at the top, Tolentino discusses the rising accessibility of beauty treatments such as Botox and fillers. Quote, 20 years ago, plastic surgery was a fairly dramatic intervention. Expensive, invasive, permanent, and often risky. But in 2002, the Food and Drug Administration approved Botox for use in preventing wrinkles. A few years later, it approved hyaluronic acid fillers such as Juvederm and Restylane which at first filled in fine lines and wrinkles and now can be used to restructure jawlines, noses and cheeks. These procedures last for six months to a year and aren't nearly as expensive as surgery. You can go get Botox and then head right back to the office, unquote. But the cost of achieving this look, which has become known as Instagram face, is even lower than one may imagine. Whilst the average price per syringe of filler is $683, Social sharers can now use apps to achieve similar results. Rebecca Jennings writing for Vox, quote, Instagram face is so ubiquitous that there are now special filters that give you the look digitally if you can't afford the real thing. Almost no one is born with Instagram face. By virtue of it being associated with a digital platform, the look is always mediated and performed. And even those who have it naturally still use tools like Facetune to enhance their already algorithmically perfect features. Finally, these physical and digital enhancements are complemented by a third, altogether less dystopian trend, cosmetic enhancements. Here, makeup and an almost endless supply of YouTube tutorials are used to alter the perceived bone structure of a face. Julia Bruculieri for the Huffington Post, quote, Social media influencers these days are starting to look like beauty clones. You know the look, a full pout, perfectly arched eyebrows, maybe some expertly applied eyeliner, topped off with a healthy dose of highlighter and cheek contouring. With a few makeup brushes, a contour palette and some matte lip colour, you could be well on your way to looking like everyone else. So where did all this begin? According to the makeup artist Colby Smith, Kim Kardashian is patient zero of Instagram face. Ultimately, he says, every social media star's goal is to look like her. And Smith isn't the only one to hold this opinion. Writing for The Cut, Kathleen Hu offers a similarly provocative opinion. Quote, Instagram's beauty posters tend to look like they're all the same woman. And that woman is Kim Kardashian. Thanks to hundreds of get-the-look tutorials, it's never been easier to strobe and contour yourself into a facsimile of the star. So... No wonder there's a cloning effect, unquote. This may seem like an exaggeration. There is, however, a truth at the centre of the assertion. When the New Yorker interviewed Beverly Hills-based plastic surgeon Jason Diamond, 
he claimed around a third of all his patients aspired to become a Kardashian doppelganger. Quote, I'd say that 30% of people come in bringing a photo of Kim or someone like Kim. There's a handful of people, but she's at the very top of the list, and understandably so. Unquote. And we haven't only started to look alike from the neck up. Dame Vivian Westwood, the late fashion designer best known for bringing the countercultural punk scene onto the catwalk, comments on the way clothing has started to conform. Quote, Everybody looks like clones, and the only people you notice are my age. I don't notice anybody unless they look great, and every now and again they do, and they are usually 70. We are so conformist, nobody is thinking. We are all sucking up stuff. We have been trained to be consumers, and we are all consuming far too much. I am a fashion designer, and people think, what do I know? But I am talking about all of this disposable crap. Unquote. So, the way we look and the way we dress has begun to converge upon a single style. But when we look at the content we consume, the story doesn't get much better. Media all looks the same. In the early 2010s, French blogger Christophe Courtois began curating movie posters that conformed to strikingly similar formulas. Rom-coms often used a guy and a girl standing back-to-back against a white background. Horror films featured a close-up of an eye. Action films opting for a lone character dressed in black with their back to the camera. Courtois' series perfectly illustrates how, in the 21st century, every genre of film sticks to a relatively narrow set of cliches, codes, and conventions that promoters slavishly abide by. In Hadley Freeman's book Life Moves Pretty Fast, Oscar-winning director Steven Soderbergh argues that this is the natural result of testing. Quote, If you've ever wondered why every poster and every trailer and every TV spot looks exactly the same, it's because of testing. It's because anything interesting scores poorly and gets kicked out. I've tried to argue that maybe the thing that's making it distinctive and score poorly actually would stick out if you presented it to these people the way the real world presents it. And I've never won that argument, unquote. But is the homogenization of Hollywood a new phenomenon? To find out, Adam Mastroianni analyzed the top 20 grossing films in every year since 1977 and coded whether each was part of a multiplicity i.e. sequel, prequel, franchise, spin-off, reboot, etc. What he found was surprising. Quote, Until the year 2000, about 25 of top-grossing movies were prequel, sequel, spin-offs, remakes, reboots, or cinematic universe expansions. Since 2010, it's been over 50% every year. In recent years, it's been close to 100%. Unquote. Mastroianni continues, In 2021, only one of the top 10 grossing films the Ryan Reynolds vehicle Free Guy was an original. There were only two originals in 2020's top 10 and none at all in 2019. A further finding for the research was that the revenue generated by the top 20 movies was until 2015 around 40% of that generated by the top 200. Since then, however, that 40% figure has begun to climb even higher, crossing the 60% threshold in 2021. In short, the top 20 films are becoming both bigger and more alike. But this isn't just happening in film. Every corner of pop culture, a smaller number of blockbusters is claiming a larger share of the market, while once creative powerhouses have become factories of the familiar. Take books. Quote, 
It used to be pretty rare for one author to have multiple books in the top 10 in the same year. Since 1990, it's happened almost every year. No author ever had three top 10 books in one year until Daniel Steele did it in 1998. In 2011, John Grisham, Catherine Stockett, and Stieg Larsson all had two chart-topping books each. In the 1950s, a little over half of the authors in the top 10 had been there before. These days, it's closer to 75%. Unquote. You can see this creative convergence for yourself when you next visit a bookstore. In fiction, you'll see many popular books following a girl with dot 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 naming convention. Of course, there's Larson's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but we've also seen Paula Hawkins' The Girl on the Train, M.R. Carey's The Girl with All the Gifts, and A.J. Grayson's The Girl in the Water. In non-fiction, if you visit the self-help category, you'll notice that every book title seems to include a swear word. We have Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Sarah Knight's The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, and Alexis Rockley's Find Your Fuck Yeah. Video games are no different. In the late 1990s, 75% or less of the best-selling video games were franchise installments. Since 2005, it's been closer to 100%. I'll quote Keith Stewart writing for The Guardian at length, quote, The absence of the E3 Expo in Los Angeles for the past two years has left a gigantic vacuum in the video game calendar. Last week, the industry did its best to fill that gaping content more with three online events. The Summer Game Fest, the Xbox and Bethesda Showcase, and the PC Gaming Show. They were underwhelming for many seasoned players. Major reveals included a remake of The Last of Us, a remake of Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2, Street Fighter 6... Final Fantasy 16, and news about the reimagining of the classic role player System Shock. Unquote. So our movies, books, and video games have all begun to look the same. But it's not just the content we consume. When we look at the content brands produce, the story doesn't get much better. Brands all look the same. In 1982, the American fashion photographer Irving Penn shot an ad for Clinique, that became known as the Shelfie. The advert is simply a photograph of the inside of a medicine cabinet. A bright white background, glass shelves, bottles of pills, and a few well-branded Clinique products. Since this iconic 80s ad, many other brands have created their own Shelfies, including Selfridges, ELF, and Billy. But this isn't the only tried and tested trope. Here's AIGAI, on design. Quote, there are many more oft-mimicked setups like the shelfie currently bouncing around the zeitgeist. One omnipresent shot includes objects placed on a mirror reflecting the sky, giving the illusion of a product floating in midair. Another example uses a dense pattern of water droplets to refract a single item into a series of psychedelic miniatures, while yet another places subjects in front of faux scenic backdrops reminiscent of a low-budget Sears photo studio. Each of these distinct setups is utilised broadly and across industries, with the same composition and concept seen on the Instagram feeds of a major beverage syndicate and an indie skincare brand alike, unquote. In an article for The Cut titled The Tyranny of Terrasso, Molly Fisher pushes this thought one step further. Whilst there is the shelfie trope and the mirror trope and the water droplet trope, 
These layouts all seem to share a surprisingly consistent style of art direction. They might be compositionally different, but they're conceptually alike. Quote, And then there are advertisements, making up a visual world of their own. The products on view, cookware, supplements, stretchy clothes, occupy blank pastel landscapes manipulated by a diversity of hands. These aren't ads that bellow or hector, they whisper, in restrained sans-serif fonts or chastely flirt in letters with curves and bounce. They're ads, sure, but they're so well designed. In this era, you come to understand design was the product. Whatever else you might be buying, you were buying design, and all the design looked the same. Unquote. Whilst Clinique's original shelfie hails from the 80s, it wasn't until the 2010s that it became a more widely adopted style, and the majority of companies who did so were digital first, DTC brands. Elizabeth Goodspeed argues this is because these brands are more likely to draw inspiration from the same vast online sources. The result, she says, is a mood board effect. Quote, This kind of visual homogeneity is a common occurrence in art direction world, where ubiquitous styles operate less like trends and more like memes, remixed and diluted until they become a single visual mess. In today's extremely online world, the vast availability of reference imagery has, perhaps counterintuitively, led to narrower thinking and shallower visual ideation. It's a product of what I like to call the mood board effect. Unquote. So, designers use the same platforms, draw inspiration from the same source of imagery, and in turn, create broadly the same types of adverts. But it isn't just advertising that is causing brands to all look the same. Their visual identities are converging as well. In December 2018, Thierry Brunfo and Tom Greenwood published an article in Fast Company where they coined a new word, blanding. Quote, the worst branding trend is the one you probably never noticed. I call it blanding. The main offenders are in tech, where a new army of clones wear a uniform of brand camouflage. The formula is sort of a brand paint by numbers. Start with a made-up word name, put it in sans-serif typeface, make it clean and readable with just the right amount of white space. Use a direct tone of voice. Nope, no need for a logo. Maybe throw in some cheerful illustrations. Just don't forget the vibrant colours. Bonus points for purple and turquoise. Blah, blah, blah. Unquote. Companies like Airbnb, Spotify and eBay have all dropped colourful logos with expressive typography for a straighter, stricter, altogether more muted alternative. Ben Schott, writing for Bloomberg, quote, Visually, blands are simple, neutral, and flat. The palette is plain and pastel, with the occasional vibrant splash. The mood is upbeat and happy, or pensive and cool, but never truly real. The dress code is smart casual. Bland people are stock photo attractive, or quirkily, jolly laid. Complex products and technical processes are illustrated by cute cartoons or noun project icons. Bland logos are confident but cute, utilising an array of tweaks and twists to provoke the all-important smile in the mind. Unquote. While the tech sector has led the way on blanding, we see the trend towards flatter, more lifeless identities playing out in categories from the high-end world of fashion to the more mass world of personal care. In a November 2021 article titled Distinction Rebellion, Contagious claimed that more and more brands seem content to drift along in the sea of sameness. Quote, 
Look up any new corporate brand identity unveiled over the past decade and you'll almost certainly find yourself staring at a flattened and simplified version of the company's old logo. The aesthetic has become so ubiquitous that it's acquired its own name, Blanding. So, advertising and brand identities are becoming more and more alike, but so too are the taglines brands employ. Shay Idelson, strategy director at ad agency BBH, collected a list of 27 brands whose tagline follow the Find Your X sentence structure. These include LucasAids, Find Your Flow, Right Moves, Find Your Happy, and Volvix, Find Your Volcano. Idelson says, quote, I love endlines, the delicate art of capturing a meaningful thought about a brand or a product in as few words as possible. A great endline will touch my heart and stay in my memory forever. I still remember some from my childhood. But in the last few years, something happened to endlines. The linguistic similarity is staggering, unquote. The same insight that sits behind the 27 taglines, the young consumers celebrate individuality above all else, has also led to the X your way endline construction. You have Nespresso's, indulge, your way, Sonos's, sound, your way, Dunelm's, done, your way, and many, many more. And so brand adverts, identities, and taglines are all starting to look the same. But where does this all leave us? Conclusion. So there you have it. The interiors of our homes, coffee shops, and restaurants all look the same. The buildings where we live and work all look the same. The cars we drive, their colours and their logos all look the same. The way we look and the way we dress all look the same. Our movies, books, and videos all look the same. And the brands we buy, their adverts, identities, and taglines all look the same. But it doesn't end there. In the age of average, homogeneity can be found in an almost indefinite number of domains. The Instagram pictures we post, the tweets we read, the TV we watch, the app icons we click, the skylines we see, the websites we visit, and the illustrations which adorn them all look the same. The list goes on and on and on. There are many reasons why this might have happened. Perhaps when times are turbulent, people seek the safety of the familiar. Perhaps it's our obsession with quantification and optimization, Or maybe it's the inevitable result of inspiration becoming globalised. Regardless of the reasons, it seems that just as Comar and Melamid produced the people's choice in art, contemporary companies produce the people's choice in almost every category of creativity. But it's not all bad news. I believe that the age of average is the age of opportunity. When every supermarket aisle looks like a sea of sameness, when every category abides by the same conventions, when every industry has converged on its own singular style, bold brands and courageous companies have the chance to chart a different course, to be different, distinctive and disruptive. So, this is your call to arms, whether you're in film or fashion, media or marketing, architecture, automotive or advertising. It doesn't matter. Our visual culture is flatlining and the only cure is creativity. It's time to cast aside conformity. It's time to exercise the expected. It's time to decline the indistinguishable. For years, the world has been moving in the same stylistic direction. And it's time we reintroduce some originality. Or, as the ad agency BBH says, where the world zigs, zag.
So that was The Age of Average by Alex Morell. And uh, yeah, it's, I, just, I, just, I just keep getting caught off caught off guard of how long it takes me to do long reads. I'm just like, you think I'd, you think I'd learn by now, but um, yeah, just it still takes me ages. And um, it, still, it still just um, blows my mind of um, honestly just how quality these things I read are. Like, um, you know, it's, it's really there's a reason long reads exist you know what i mean not everything can be packed into um under a thousand words um and it's good it's good that these these writers do this um because um you know it's 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 important in some way and um i do think homogeneity is a scourge um uh, as i was as i was reading i was trying to like think of think of examples and think of times where i'm just like huh this is actually crazy how everything looks the same um and you know coffee shops is definitely one i feel like that's kind of been a thing in some fashion um but just the fact that internationally it's now all the same i think that's the that's the scary thing um you know i when i say when coffee shops is the easiest probably the easiest one to homogenize where if i say coffee shop you'll probably say the exact same things as me in terms of like describing it um but you know i i I've thought about this with cars i mean we did um we did that uh the 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 color um the lack of color um long read a few weeks uh well a few a few months ago probably at this point and that was very riveting and i got this practically at the same time um so i i did find a very heavy link towards both of these and both of them are very true um and both of them are very i guess concerning definitely as a creative person i feel like there's a you know uh you know, a, a homogeneity thing going around, um, it's, you know, podcasting especially, like, um, you know, every interview podcast does either two things, they either get very substantive or they talk about things that are kind of um, away from the actual person they're interviewing and instead just, like, chat shit. And, you know, all well and good, whatever you, whichever one you do, um, I feel like one has more sub- substance than the other. Um, but... You know, true crime podcasts, I mean, how many of those can you possibly listen to and just basically get the same thing? Obviously, the stories are the same, but the structure's all the same. Um, yeah, it's just, just a, a lot of homogeneity everywhere. Um, you know, I like to think that this is relatively unique in the space of podcasting. I don't know anybody else that literally just reads shit and talks about them. Um, you know, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's, podcasts like digging in digits and like in search of source i guess but not in the subjects we talk about and not in the way we talk about them um, and i think i don't see anybody doing a music journalism podcast um that's specific to music journalism um like in search of source does and even script wise i you know i i sense it i sense it in the stuff i write um you know i try to personally write things that i just like and i enjoy writing um but you know i've written i've written stuff that's kind of of the zeitgeist um you know i wrote a i wrote a script be it in eight days um completed from scratch which was kind of part of the challenge for me um but i wrote it and it kind of came out as just like a a kind of like a succession vibe you know what i mean and you know that's fine you know it's fine that's 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 all well and that's all well and good but there are shows like that now, you know, there's Succession, there's Billions, there's Industry, um, you know, there's, there's loads of them kind of things now, and uh, I don't feel the need 
um, to get that particular one out there too fast because, um, or any of them too fast because I, you know, I'm busy building on uh, building something else. But um, yeah, man, even the stuff I write, I get concerned. It's just like, is this actually fresh in any way? Um, and I think for most people, as long as it isn't a superhero thing, they don't really care um, in terms of movies. Um, if it's not, you know, there needs to be just, you know, kabooms going about. Uh, there needs to be CGI and it's just like depressing, to be honest. Um, I watched, I, I, was, I was watching the last half of like Watchmen, uh, the film, the Zack Snyder film. Um, and it really, it really, it could have, that could have been made now. Like it, there's, there's, it really could have been made now. And I think it dropped in like 2009. It's been over 10 years since that film came out and it really could have come out today and it would feel the same. Um, so, yeah, man. Homogeneity um, and just um, lack of creativity. It's crazy um, how, you know, just people just don't care. I've noticed it about cars, definitely. Like, that's that's a very obvious one for me. Um, but, yeah, I don't really know how to get away from that. Um, you know, my boy, as a final thought, my boy... Um, has been ge- telling me this thing, right? Just it's just a thing he keeps saying to me. He's like, "You you always try and be different. You you why 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 are you always trying to act different?" I'm like, "I don't try and act different. <laughs> I really don't. I don't actively try to be different in certain ways, right? I just know my taste for certain things, right? Um, I don't feel like I dress different, you know. Even yesterday, I was thinking about I was thinking about this yesterday when it came to like when it comes to like people in clothes, um. When I went to see Ari Lennox, which was probably the blackest show I've ever been to, um, I've probably counted like maybe fifteen white people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, just literally a small number, and the rest of them were just like melanated in some fashion. Um, you know, there was. Um, I feel like there was a. You, you could probably like categorize fits, right? Um, into certain into neat categories, but I feel like everybody had their individual vibe going on, and that's cool. That's cool, and obviously that caters to you know um, faces and body shapes and all that stuff. But in terms of just pure clothing, I feel like people had you know kind of um, their a a specific style to them. Maybe again, if you categorize their fits and try to label them, um, I feel like you could probably get a few categories in there. But yeah, you know, I feel like there was some variety there. So. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's weird, but homogeneity is definitely, definitely, definitely a thing. Especially, you know, I was thinking about my home recently. Um, I I bitched about my mum painting a a wall, um, basically just the same color as every other wall, and I was just like, that was it was formerly like a a wine red color, and it just I don't know, it just popped. It just popped. But um, apparently, it made the room look smaller. Like, but I really hate when people say that. Don't I don't get it. Things make the room smaller. You know what I mean? Just cabinets, chairs, they those physical things make the room look smaller. I don't a black wall doesn't make it look smaller. It's just oh, anyway. I'll leave it there before I go on a complete ramp. Ladies and gentlemen. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been trying to say it's been most good. Intro music was too much by vanilla. The long read interlude music was sometime soon by Tesk. Thanks to the mature music for Bluetooth both. You can find the, all their links in the full show notes. 
And thanks to Happy Hire for the charismatic uh, interlude, um, uh, charismatic instrumental for the interlude, if that makes any sense. You can also find his link in the full show notes. Uh, he has an album dropping soon. Um, I think it's a Bandcamp exclusive, so keep your eyes peeled on that one. Um, and with that said, yeah, I hope you have a good week. I should always try and do the same. <sighs> but until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.